We're going to pause, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to consider what Paul's message is to us concerning the gospel. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also, we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's take a moment and pray together over this text. God, what a, a wonder, what a gift to no longer be enslaved to sin. And I ask this morning that whatever we are holding on to, whatever unbelief we have concerning that statement, that you would begin to rid us of the suspicion. Rid us of the experience of still feeling so in bondage to sin. Would you lighten its hold on us? Give us hope in our union with Jesus. Show us what we have in him so that we could be more alive to you, less alive to unrighteousness. And I pray that we would take this with a sober-minded approach to see the gift that lies herein. I pray that where we have made peace, where we have been coddling some weakness or some sin against you, that you would awaken us and show us what you've really given us in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. This is an instructive moment in the book of Romans. It's an instructive moment because it is about the time when Paul wants to slow down to make sure that we've got it. And he's going to do that in some very specific ways, namely by asking pointed questions at the right time. So he starts out chapter 6 by pausing and saying, what shall we say then? And this is a moment of instruction from a teacher to students to make sure that they're following along. 
He wants to see whether or not they have carefully come with him on the journey into the great, scandalous grace of the gospel. Are they paying attention? Do they really get the implications of what he's trying to say? Because I believe his experience, and perhaps ours is sometimes, is that you could hear something so foreign, so unbelievable, so outside of what you expected, that you are not able to even take in the totality of the argument. You begin to short-circuit what is being said before you allow it to wash over you. And so one good tip is you begin to read Romans, especially as we get into the sticky stuff, the things that are really thick over here over the next number of chapters. One of the best indicators about whether or not you're getting it is whether you're allowing yourself to wrestle with the questions that Paul expects you to be wrestling with. And here is my guess. Many times, people come through a book like this, and they think they understand it, but they've never asked the questions that Paul is answering by his rhetorical statements. And what that tells me is, is that we have perhaps not dared to allow ourselves to believe the premises of his argument. It will be our ability and our willingness to ask the questions that Paul is asking that will give us confidence that we're on the right track. Do we think what he thinks we should be thinking? Does that make any sense? Are we questioning what he thinks we should be questioning? That, to me, is one of the litmus tests of our understanding of the book of Romans. And what has happened now is through five chapters, Paul has completely and utterly dismantled the penalty of sin against all who stood in opposition to God. He has shown that out of an unbelievable exchange of his grace, that Jesus has done away with the penalty due those who were sinners, that God is both now just and the justifier of the ungodly, and that all of those who would walk with Jesus can be set free from sin, that in fact it is that sin previous that is given way now to glorious reigning grace. And he anticipates something. He anticipates that those who are paying attention and are listening to this argument and may have some incredulity over the whole thing are going to come at him with a couple of objections. Two questions. First, there's going to be a question from the, the direction of the scandalous reality that the human heart People who know their own hearts well or are suspicious of other people's hearts well know that to talk about sin in this way is going to invite someone to presume on the kindness of forgiveness. In other words, the question goes something like this. What are we supposed to say then? We can just sin so that grace will abound? And the feeling behind that is, don't you know how human beings are? You're just going to forgive your kid. They're just going to do it again. You mean you're going to give them mercy? They'll take another cookie. There is a question about how unbelievably free forgiveness can be. And it's as though the person asking the question wants to call Paul out on the carpet and tell him to stop being so Pollyannish. And to realize that there is a temptation deep at the heart of the brokenness of every human being to see kindness or forgiveness as a possibility of weakness. And that reality is certainly not beyond any of us. In fact, I would say that inside of me, the most disturbing moments of sin that I've ever noticed 
is the heinous way that I can tend to get away with sin simply because I can get away with it. And it is those moments that stir me the most. It is those moments where I realize that I had weighed the effect. I knew just how sinful it was. In fact, I knew I didn't even want it. I knew how it would impact others. I knew that I'd been asked directly not to do so. I knew that it would be dishonoring to God. And I went ahead and got away with it anyway. Simply because I could. And the question becomes, is the gospel good enough and big enough? And is there forgiveness offered to human hearts like that? And here's what someone might want to say. They might want to say, well, look, I believe in second chances. And I believe in being reasonable with somebody. But you can't just go offering forgiveness to human hearts like that. They're going to just get away with it. And Paul says, if you don't feel a little bit of that scandal and the forgiveness that comes with Jesus, then you're not really understanding how big of a deal this is. Because it turns out, that the gospel goes straight to the heart of hearts exactly like that. You see, that's one side of the question, though. Maybe that's a skeptical question from, you can't trust human beings with a gospel like this. Doesn't it kind of sound like that? You can't, you can't just go around forgiving people. They're just going to take advantage of you up and down. That's one side of the question. But Paul knows that this question comes from a different direction as well. What should we say then? Would he continue in grace that sin, or in sin that grace may abound? And in this sense, I get that he has a sort of shock response of the self-righteous. That maybe this is a complaint against God. That maybe this is a complaint that God hasn't done enough to set up a system to put away with sin. That God, in fact, is now the one who is showing that sin is not that big a deal. That you can't really blame the person who's going to presume on kindness. Human hearts are human hearts after all. But maybe we should blame a God who sets up a system that invites people to sin and calls it grace. That maybe the question, what are you just going to let people sin so that grace can abound, maybe is a misunderstanding, not of the heart of man, but the heart of God and his disgust over sin. Maybe this question says something like this to God. Don't you understand the consequences of allowing yourself to be taken advantage of this like this? Don't you understand, God, that law matters? Don't you have standards? And my Understanding here of Romans chapter 6 is that Paul's going to answer these questions, these two sided scandals of this problem of what now of sin, if forgiveness is a real thing, not if, because it's a real thing. And I would say that Paul's going to answer it in two ways. He's going to say the first mistake of license, the idea that people would take license with this, is a problem with addressing what happens with the human heart. It's a problem, it's a misaddressing of what takes place with a human heart who has come to Jesus. 
The second mistake is a problem that remains from misaddressing or mistaking the heart of God towards sin and what he's done to kill it. So we answer this objection. What shall we do with sin? Are we going to sin that grace may abound? In two directions. One, we re-examine what's been happened or what happens in a human heart when they come to Christ. And second, we re-examine the heart of God towards sin and what he's done to kill it. That will be the way to understanding or getting out of this conundrum, this feeling that someone might have, this idea that they can't quite get there to be as free as God is free. And it turns out that the path, it turns out the path to re-examining our horizontal situation, what happens in us, and our path in re-examining God's view towards sin, this vertical problem we have with him, is the path of the cross. And Paul is going to say that the key, the key concept in coming to Jesus and dealing with sin properly is to reckon oneself dead. Dying to live is the key concept in coming to know Jesus. Dying to live. Here's what he's going to say. By no means, and that verse 2 is going to show up a number of times in Romans, it's meganoita, it's like a massive scream out, no way, as if, Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's going to be the key phrase, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And this is the question, if you are asking about sin and that grace may abound, you don't understand what really died either when we died in Christ or when Christ died for sin. Because many of us are tempted to want to come to Jesus but keep ourselves. Many of us are tempted to believe that we can bring our sins to Jesus and keep them. Many of us are tempted to believe that we can carry with us secrets but be fully known by Christ. And Paul wants to show that there is a reason that the path to Jesus includes taking up a cross and dying. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus forecasted this. Matthew 16, he says, his disciples in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then we will repay each person according to what he has done. The first step in overcoming in getting to the point where you are no longer under the rule of sin, is to recognize that the first step in coming to Jesus includes dying to yourself in your sins. And the gospel will not make sense to you if you have conceived of it in such a way as I come to Jesus and I add him to the moral life that I'm building, but I keep parts of myself including my inclinations and my desires 
towards secret sin. Until you have fully reckoned yourself dead, did you die on the cross or not? That's the question that Paul wants to know. And it really is the all-in kind of question. There is no such Christian who comes to Jesus and remains alive prior to being resurrected with him. You must see yourself both completely and totally dying with him and being raised to newness of life, or you have neither. This means that the coming to Jesus over and over and over every single day is a re-reckoning of oneself as dead to sin. You legally, really, completely, and utterly died. That is the path to come to know Jesus. It is a new step of identity. So Paul goes on and he says, to get through this question, the first thing we need to do is reckon with our identity. And he begins to ask questions about what we know. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, he says this rhetorically because it seems like those who are asking the questions must not get it. It is a battleground over our hearts and our minds to remember and to think about what actually happened when we came to know Jesus. Did our old self really die? Do we really have a newness of life? Are we actually set free from the tyranny of sin or not? And the thing that we insist upon again and again and again is that when we come to know Jesus, when Jesus takes over, it is not a small addition. It is not a little bit of a change in our moral makeover. We're not adding Jesus to a string of ethical additives or some trying, a trying out of a, no, a new whole food diet or something like that. I don't mean to be offensive to people who like that kind of thing. Jesus means it. When he says that if you come to him, you are born again, he means completely and utterly and truly born again. Now, this may not mean that you experience all of this at once. You'll have a lifetime of working it out. But if you cannot and will not reckon yourself as completely and totally new in him, then the implications of the gospel will be stunted in you from the very start. This means that from your previous life, there is a complete and total separation from the legal claims, including the consequences of your formal self and sin. This means that who you were previously has been put to death. This means that what you have in him, what you've received from him, is so completely and utterly and totally new that it is unrecognizable from the life that you left previously. And it is this insistence on brand newness that gets us to the identity that allows a kind of freedom in moving forward from the bonds that entangle us previously. There is something to be said 
for reminding yourself about who you are. When we come together on Sunday mornings, the question becomes, who am I? What do you tell yourself about who you are? What kind of adjectives, what kind of motivations, what kind of verbs, what kind of things draw you? What sort of temptations overcome you? Are you a struggling person, a doubting person? Are you a guilty person, a fidgety person, an anxious person? Are you a persevering person, a hardworking person? There is an entire lineup of things that we tell ourselves about who we are, sometimes intentionally, other times unintentionally, a constant narrative describing a battleground for ourselves. And in the midst of this, there is a gospel, there is a new word, a good news declaration that needs to be spoken over and over and over again to all who have come to Christ to say that none of them define the reality of who you are. There are certain claims that have been made on you and I that overwhelm and completely outstrip all that has gone before. First and foremost, I have been born again in Christ. My old self is gone because I died with Christ and was buried in baptism with him. Gone. I have been given brand new status. I have an inheritance that is mine in Jesus that can never, ever be separated. I am not only a work in progress. I'm not hoping to one day to get an inheritance. I'm not wishing and praying that I would find forgiveness one day. I have been given these things in Jesus. And each and every day, I am leaning into the Spirit of God and asking Him to remind me and to show me who I am. That's the argument that Paul's making in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know, he says, we were buried, so we have been united with Him, he says in verse 5. We certainly, we shall certainly be united with Him at the end of verse 5. We know that in verse 6. Verse 7, for one who has died. These are all certainty words. Him trying to convince himself and anyone who would listen that what they have in Jesus is real. The first step to overcoming an ongoing enslavement to sin is to reckon yourself, to remind yourself who you are. Now, I'm going to assume something. I don't mean to be judgmental. I'm going to assume that you still feel the effects of sin, sometimes in great amounts. I'm going to guess that you read through Romans chapter 6, and you say to yourself, I know this is true, but I don't always feel this. My guess is that you are hopefully asking 
and wanting to know the answer to the question, how do I get further along? How do I stop being so angry, so self-absorbed? How do I stop worrying constantly? How do I stop lusting? How do I stop overeating? How do I stop envying? My greed has no end, it seems. How do I stop being so callous? And I believe that Paul wants to make us see that there is not only progress possible, but there is inevitable progress that has already been given. That God has done all that he needed to do to give us a brand new identity and to show us that we are free In a legal sense, we are free from these things that bind us. And so, the first mistake we can make in complaining about the forgiveness of grace or saying, how can sin continue if grace is just going to abound, is to misunderstand who we are in Christ. The reality is, is there is no single person who has committed themselves to Jesus and is found in him who continues to be bound by sin. You are dead to sin if you're in Christ. Period. It is a misunderstanding, a case of mistaken identity. And where you find sin alive and well in you, if you are committed to Christ, it is a gross perversion. It is a falsity. It is something that needs to be denied and set aside. Now, the effects will still be there. You may still feel it. But Paul's giving permission to say this is not reality. Second, he seems to be saying anyone who complains that God would forgive sins like this doesn't understand what Christ accomplished on our behalf. And that is this, that God cares about sin more than any of us. And he has not and would not set up a system wherein newness of life would be offered, but the death of sin would still be allowed to reign. So we must not misunderstand the heart of God in bringing the gospel as well. When Jesus died, he died a death that killed sin once and for all. Verse 10 of Romans chapter 6 For the death that he died, that Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. This is the same way to say something that Peter's going to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. The death of the Son of God was not of small consequence. It took the very blood of the Son of God himself to overcome the penalty due humanity for sin. And this is not a small thing, something to be glossed over, something to be overlooked. If you complain that God has not enough, done enough to eradicate sin in the world, then you do not understand the great cost of the death of Jesus. What Jesus did 
by going into the grave and absorbing the wrath of God concerning sin, is to kill sin once and for all so that we would no longer be enslaved to it. God's definitive answer towards sin is that he is done with it. He will no longer abide it. That it will be put in its rightful place once and for all. And that all who would come to him can be freed from its claims. You must reckon yourself as in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you died to sin because there's no other death to die than the one that Jesus died that overcame sin once and for all. So we get to the end of this section, this thinking that Paul's going through. He's asking the big question, what shall we say? He comes at it from two different directions. And then he gives us a final bit of advice. He says in verse 11, which I think would be a good break in Romans chapter 6. It doesn't always end up this way because of the way the verses have been organized or the paragraphs. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word has been used before in Romans, reckon. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Then he gives some basic advice. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And usually I read that and I think to myself, well, that'd be nice. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. But I think there's power behind the simplicity of this message. Let not sin therefore reign. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as, as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And I think herein lies the simplicity of getting out from under sin. If step one is to identify with Jesus and to find yourself dead in him, and step two is to recognize that his death did in fact kill sin, then perhaps step three is to simply start living like it. You see, many of us are so accustomed to the claims of sin on our lives, the patterns that we have developed, that we haven't dared to speak back to sin and to step away. Many of us make a coddling of our sins rather than take the cause to them. There's an illustration that Martin Lloyd joins, who is a he was a preacher in Britain, so I guess he can speak about these things, at least in somewhat of a, a distanced state. He gave this illustration of people who still feel the bondage of sin, though they're legally not bound by it. He says this concerning Romans 6. He said, take the case of those poor slaves in the United States of America about 100 years ago. You see, they were in a condition of slavery. Then the American Civil War came, and as a result of the war, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened, he said. You see, all slaves, young and old, were given their freedom, but many of the older ones endured long years of servitude. They found it very, very difficult to understand a new status. They could hear that the announcement of slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds and not to even say thousands of times in their afterlives, the experiences of many of them, it was very hard to realize it. And they would see an old master coming near them and they would begin to quake and tremble and they would wonder whether or not they were just about again to be sold. You see, it turns out that for many people, you can be a slave experientially, even if you are not a slave legally. And whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, 
God here now tells us through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into it, as I often do, it's simply because I do not realize who I am. And so Paul says, I must realize it, I must recognize it, and walk away. So the question becomes this. Do you desire to have sin release its dominion on you? Does verse 14 seem like good news to you? Sin will have no dominion under you, for you are not under law, but under grace. If this seems like good news, then I have positive information for you. It is true. Every word of it is true. And today, and this week, and in the days to come, when you feel the patterns of sin set in, when anger begins to stir, when you begin to hear the call of sin and you say, present, you should simply no longer show up. I believe that it takes a kind of faith reckoning to believe that God has given you power of the Spirit of God to overcome these things. But in the practice of pushing back against sin, we will find more and more that what we have in Christ is sturdy and strong and will deliver us.